You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. The, the school that Mickey and I work at, um, we have, it, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a private school, so they let the students pick a lot of their own projects and things like that that they want to do as a class. They get to do a lot of cool things we never would have got to do at school. Right. Well, well, the thing is, it, the, the, a lot of their projects, though, are things that we did on the farm. <laughs> right. Um, because apparently that's cool to people who don't live on the farm <laughs> is to get to mess with animals. Um, but the first grade class is, uh, they're getting goats they've they've this is a disaster in the making <laughs> well I've, I've mentioned i think the goats are, are going to be beloved until the first time they get out and get on top of someone's uh maserati or tesla or <laughs> some other high dollar car but but the but they have raised money for a goat pen and to purchase goats and that's that's pretty cool now the problem is the um the the goats we were gonna get we we're gonna get some pygmy goats and we found a goat farmer who has pygmy goats and uh, verifiable pygmy goats because apparently that there's this thing where some farmers Just sell, sell the baby sell goats. baby goats saying they're pygmy goats <laughs> and there's no way to know until it's too late <laughs> and then you can't return them but um anyway that, that's neither here nor there <laughs> but the problem is that the farmer we were gonna purchase from they. Our pen was a little later than expected, so the goats we were going to get have already been sold off. Um, not a big deal. You know, he's going to have more, but they're not going to be ready till after school's out. So we're getting a, a loner goat um, from another farm. I know. It's That's a, just weird. <laughs> and apparently, apparently you can loan goats. I don't know. I, I, knew, I never would have thought of this. But the problem is it's not a pygmy goat. It's actually, it's a fainting goat. And so I'm kind of worried, this, being that we have a whole bunch of school children running around making loud noises, that it's it, never going to recover. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping either this goat is desensitized a little bit to loud noises or that uh, the children will be kind. The children will be kind. <laughs> Although I've heard more adults say they want to go scare it than children, so... Well, I, I, I'm kind of tempted because I've never been around fainting goats. Although, <laughs> although I actually, I don't know if the children know they're get, that it, it's going to be a fainting goat, but they're going to have a fill-in goat so that they can, um, they can have something to say that, you know, show for the, the money they raised, which is great. You know, they, they, they put in the hard work. They, they did a lot. Now, I, I did tell my headmaster, now he's not for this, that if he really wanted to have the full program, you would get two goats at the beginning of the year, raise them out. And then, then, you know, uh, what do you do? Do you butcher a goat at the end yeah. of the year? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you cut them up, but if, you know, yeah, like you butcher a cow, you slaughter a pig, you dress a chicken. Right. You know, the, but to, uh, I think, you know, if you want to have the full program, that's what you should do at the end of the year. Serve it for lunch. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Then serve it in the cafeteria. It'd be fantastic. So, um, I don't think our kids are going to go for that though. That's one of the skills, life skills you gain on the farm is being able to uh, know which critters are going to be eaten and which ones are going to make it. Yeah. Because we always, we named the ones that we were going to keep, 
Right. Yeah. And, you you mentioned yeah. that before. <laughs> well, and, and even some of them that we were going to eat, we still named them and we, we still had a good relationship with them. We just knew oh, yeah. that, hey, you're here for a reason and it's not just to be friends. <laughs> so anyway. so That should make your life interesting out there at the school. Yeah. Well, the, the good news is apparently he's going to go live on the headmaster's farm during the summer. Oh, well, that, the, goat, the goats that we're getting are. That will be nice because I can just see you out there chasing goats around the parking lot. I already chased the chickens around during the summer. I know. <laughs> man, that place is, is nuts. It's, it's, a good, it's a good place, though. It's so much fun. Not every kid needs that experience. I right. Mean, so. But. But anyway, so back to what, we, what we're doing here. Because I, I know you didn't come here just to hear about goats. <laughs> well, kind of. Uh, that, that actually becomes part of the story later on. Later, uh, but so, not yet. Yeah. So maybe you should have saved the intro for that. Um, actually, today we're, we're going to step back from the text and we're going to look at some of the myths and the folklore and traditions that have grown up around Joseph's life to this point. Because there's a lot of things that people have added onto the story. And okay, just to clarify, this isn't always a bad thing. Okay. Um, sometimes telling these extra stories are done with the intent of making the text more memorable. Uh-huh. And because sometimes the Bible can really, it can be kind of dry. It just presents facts. It, it doesn't really give you like character insight on a lot of stuff or motivation. And, and a lot of these stories were with the idea of trying to humanize or actually elevate the, the characters. It kind of depends on who's writing it. And that's what these stories are for is, is to either um, to humanize so that you can identify and you can remember the text better or to elevate the characters and to solve problems within the text. Or they're, they're there to, to add on um, just another dimension that you don't have within the text and kind right. of fill in the gaps. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about these stories is they tend to make it more memorable. The other thing about this section of the Bible is we're kind of moving into that point, and I mentioned it on the last episode, that now we've got parts of the Bible that can be verified through archaeology. Right. Uh, we're, we're moving out of that nomadic um, existence, at least for a short while. And we're, we're being involved with a culture that has, um, it, it has buildings, it has artwork, it, it, we can still There's visit There's evidence these, of it. Yeah, we can Physical visit Physical evidence we can actually... Pick apart. Exactly. And one of the things that happens when we, when we start having these, these pieces of evidence is we as Christians tend to try to impose a biblical meaning on these, these pieces of evidence. And sometimes that goes too far. And okay. so that's the one I wanted to start with because I did not realize there's like this whole section of the internet that is devoted to proving that Joseph is the Egyptian god Imhotep. Okay. Now, there are a lot of connections. There's a lot of crossovers. And uh, things like um, Imhotep was supposed to be wise. He was supposed to be um, able to heal. He was um, an architect who built things. We know that Joseph built store cities. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the connection there. There's a possibility that Imhotep did also build store cities. We do know that he was instrumental in building the step pyramid okay yeah and uh, that's kind of famous because that's the precursor to the great pyramids the prototype yeah yeah and what we're used to seeing um 
and, and so we we have this this story of Imhotep that there's there's two parts to it. First, there's the the factual, mm-hmm. and the factual is he was a uh, the vizier or the second in command in Egypt at the time of the Egyptian pharaoh Dozier. Okay, and so we we know that he actually existed, and that. Later on, he was he was deified, and this is really the the big the big connection between him and Joseph is that both of them were supposed to have led Egypt through a period of seven years of famine. Okay, and so if you just look at the basic um, stories, there is really there there's a reason to think, hey, could this possibly be him? Right. Could could this work out? And we have uh, what's called the Imhotep's Famine Stella, which that's... What's a Stella? A Stella is just a stone pillar that has a story inscribed on it, or okay. it could be doc, uh, decrees or laws also inscribed on it. Okay. So it, it's a stone monument that would have been put out for the entire public to read. Okay. And so uh, Hammurabi's code was written on one. And okay. so, yeah, the, these were for public education, essentially. Okay. And on the Stella, there's the story of the seven-year famine, and Imhotep's directed to go seek wisdom from the gods. And he's supposed to go to sleep in this sacred place, and he has a vision who, um, from Kum, one of the Egyptian gods, who promises to end the famine. And when Imhotep returns to his people, he places a tax on everyone to honor the gods. And he places the tax goods in storehouses. Okay. Now, Joseph, later on, we haven't got to this point in the story. But yeah, there's a similar, very similar, because when, when we see that um, the Egyptians have sold off everything they've got, that Joseph imposes a tax so they can pay back the grain that he's giving exactly. them. So yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, so you can see why there is this, this desire to, to say, hey, Joseph could have been... This God. And then when you add in also the parts in there that where Joseph is speaking to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, here's a man who's filled with the spirit of God and Pharaohs mm-hmm. were supposed to have the spirit of God. It makes sense that the, that Joseph or Imhotep could have been deified and, sure. and, and Imhotep was deified and we, you know, Stargate fans everywhere know this. So this is, um, yeah. And now the thing is, the story about Imhotep uh, supernaturally intervening on behalf of the people to end this famine really didn't take place until uh, the Ptolemy era, which mm-hmm. uh, somewhere around 333 to 250 BCE. Now, he lived around 2600 BCE. So, you know, there's a major gap between Imhotep, the person. And the documentation. Exactly. and. There's there's no uh, connection as far as the person that he was actually a healer or into medicine. And by the way, that whole uh, sleeping and getting uh, Imhotep's job as a god was that he would send sleep to those who, was in, who were in pain. Okay. And so that connects him very closely with the Greek god Asclepius, who we've mentioned on other episodes. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about he... Uh... He went to go sleep in the holy place, and mm-hmm. we talked about uh, people going into Asclepius Temple to be healed, right? Sleeping there, and the the snakes, snakes would come, yeah. and yeah, all that fun stuff that the we snake spa, <laughs> yes, which is yeah, where I want to spend my weekends. 
So um, he also is, Imhotep was a, uh, the person was a priest in Heliopolis. Okay. Now, Heliopolis is the Greek name for the city where On was worshipped. Okay. And On, um, his worship factors into Ra, which is the sun god. Right. And so Heliopolis, sun, city of the sun. And we know like, that this... Like Helio, as in heliocentric. Mm-hmm, like exactly. Our, like our uh, solar our, system. Exactly. I couldn't think of the name. Yeah. E- exactly. And so um, we, we do know that this this occurred. And there is another tie to Joseph there, because every time Joseph's wife is mentioned, she's Asenoth, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Okay. Every single time she's mentioned. So we have this... We do have these superficial connections. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is um, the dates are all wrong. Okay. Joseph would have been somewhere in um, between 2000 or 1600 BCE when he was in Egypt. Uh, we, we really don't know that there's a huge dis- debate over when exactly all of this occurred because, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, we're just getting into that part where archaeology can confirm or anything. Right. Um, Dozier, we, we know that he was alive somewhere between, well, 2649 to 2630 is when he ruled. So 600 years, uh, difference when Imhotep was alive and Joseph was, would have been living. Right. And that's a minimum. It could have been a greater distance than that. Okay. So, um, Joseph's never connected to medicine. He never serves as a, as a priest. He just married the daughter of a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, in, Joseph's name is never found in any of the inscriptions, uh, in his Hebrew name or his Egyptian name. Neither one of those show up. And right. you would think that if we're going to have him as this important figure, that his name would have shown up. Uh, the Bible never calls him Imhotep. Right. And so uh, we don't have that there. There's no connection to Joseph ever building a pyramid. You would have thought that if he was going to build one, the Bible would have mentioned that. That's a pretty significant achievement right and the the biggest problem is the famine connection because well and and the uh, i mean you do have mm-hmm. information about storehouses and so you you know when he helps build those but we don't have but it never says pyramid right something else uh too just to just to point this out because pharaoh changes his name mm-hmm. and so you know there there's evidence there that they're not above Giving the Egyptian name in the text, right? Then you see that also again echoed with Moses, because Moses is a is an Egyptian mm-hmm. name, uh, which is you know one of those things that, that people who uh, critics of the text say, you know say that kind of supports the idea that it it's actually was a legitimate story and someone who existed because otherwise why would you give your Hebrew your Hebrew hero an Egyptian name right. unless you were just really good at forgeries, <laughs> right? Um, but well, and the, and those are the kinds of things we have to look at in the text. Um, but the 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 big kind of kibosh on this huge conspiracy theory out there, it really is the seven year famine. And I'm just going to read this because I I mean I didn't even have to go dig for this. I already had this with what we've been looking. Uh-huh. So I'm just going to read right out of what it says. Um, Iti, the treasurer of the town of some Egyptian word that I can't pronounce. Uh, boasted that he supplied his fellow citizens with barley in the years of famine and helped other towns as well. 
the steward of Sinai or Coptus reported on, in his stella or inscribed commemorative stone pillar that in the painful years of distress, he rationed out barley to his town. Another Egyptian name that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. A great chieftain recorded that during a seven-year famine in which the entire south, um, south, south half of Egypt is said to have died in, of hunger, the people devoured their own children. He took pride in foreseeing the event caused by a low Nile and in having been able to rush grain and grant loans of corn to various towns in order to alleviate the situation. Another famine inscription from this period comes Emini, the chief of the days of another Egyptian name I'm not going to pronounce, who recalled that in the years of famine, he supplied wheat and barley to the people so that none went hungry until the Nile returned. So right there, we have several examples of great men who were remembered by Egypt, who got them through famines. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a couple of them with the seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not just in Egypt. If we go over to Mesopotamia in the Gilgamesh uh, saga, there's another seven-year famine mm -hmm. mentioned there. Um, Sifri, um, east of Aleppo, has survived curses put over it to have a seven-year famine. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, we find this reference to a seven-year famine. And so Joseph isn't the only one to do it. And I think this is the problem. We get these scholars and I show you air quotes there, who know a little bit about the Bible or maybe a lot about the Bible, but they aren't versed in Egyptian folklore and history, mm -hmm. or they aren't versed in Mesopotamian folklore and history, and they see a few little connections, mm -hmm. and then they want to overplay their hand, and they want to try to make it where, oh, well, this is proof that the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to make the seven-year famine the, the hallmark of who is Joseph, who are we going to pick? He has to be a whole bunch of people. Yeah. yeah. And so we need to be really careful as Christians not to, to overplay that because then we end up being liars. And I mean, at, at worst, mm -hmm. and, or we're just ignorant at best. And, and we don't want to, we don't need to go there. And I don't think we need to actually even try to prove that the Bible's true. I, I don't think that's our job. Uh, I think it's great. Well, well, and now I will say this: we, the people who are doing archaeology, who who are called to that, and and mm -hmm. that's their field of expertise. Mm -hmm. Not, we're not saying they shouldn't do what they do, right? But we're saying everyday Christians, we, you know, like non-specialists, we we shouldn't have to think that we have to protect the Bible, right? And um, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, I, I, I want to clarify clarify that point because I think I think you know. If you, if you if you take someone could take that statement out of context and think oh well archaeologists are just wasting their time right and I don't want to I don't want to apply that one no bit. no because if we do find things that that verify what the Bible is okay take like the Hittites for mm -hmm. for several centuries it was believed that the Hittites were just a, a manufactured plot element of the biblical writers mm -hmm. and that they weren't real and then we did find out later through archaeology that these were real people. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, and, and we should celebrate that, and I think that's great. The, the problem is, is when we, we go too far, mm -hmm. and, and we do it with the right intentions. We, we want the Bible to be true, and so we try to make it appear that everything can be verified, and it can't. I mean, the things that we do have from archaeology are, are it's astounding that any of this survived. Right. I, I it doesn't make sense that a lot of it survived. When you consider just the, 
the harshness of nature and the way things break down and decompose, the fact that we've got this stuff is amazing. And you and I, we love this stuff. We we enjoy, you know, if we get to go to a museum and see some of this, mm-hmm. you know, anything ancient. I mean, I, I just kind of get all crazy about it because it's, it, it's, um, it's astounding. But when we overplay our hand and we try to impose something that's not there on whatever evidence we may have, mm-hmm. now we're doing a disservice, not just to ourselves, but to anyone who might build their faith on, oh, I can believe the Bible's true because Joseph is Imhotep. And then if they dig deeper and they find out he's not, is the Bible not true for them anymore? Right. Have we hurt their faith? So I think we need to be really, really careful and make sure that that we are presenting the facts as best we can. Right. And and reading the story for what it's about. I mean, because, I mean, here's the other thing. You know, if we're spending all of our time trying to to say that Joseph was Imhotep, right? The, we're not we're not spending time actually examining the text because what's the point of the text? Well, the point of the text is that Joseph is able to save people from the faith that the gods put them in, mm-hmm. because you know Egypt out there in the by the Nile Delta, it's not exactly rainy. Right. So the rising and falling of the Nile for crops is important. And how does that happen? It happens by the will of the gods. Now, we, of course, now know now, nowadays that, you know, it's because of runoff from farther mm-hmm. up the river. Mm-hmm. But if that seasonal flooding doesn't happen, it's the, the gods, the will of the gods trying to either punish you or wipe you out or, or something of that nature. And Joseph is able to thwart that. And so that's, I mean, if we're looking at the point of the story, mm-hmm. then that's pretty important. Exactly. And I should point out, too, that when I was researching this, the only sites that tried to pass this off as fact were not scholarly sites. These were um, conspiracy theory uh, people. These were uh, just, you know, people who... Probably good, well-intentioned. I, I'm not going to say they were evil. When I went to the scholarly databases and put this in trying to find articles, no serious scholar was touching it. Right. So that tells you something right there, that this is something that's grown up in the mind of the public, but probably doesn't have any good academic backing. Right. And so this is why we've got to be so careful on the internet and really vet our sources. Can we trust them? Why should we trust them? And a little tangent here. Just because somebody who writes an article has doctor <laughs> in front of their name, it doesn't mean a dadgum thing. Right. Um, there are a lot, a lot of honorary doctors in the Christian circles. And that basically what that means, it means someone is either being recognized for their work, which is a good thing. Sure. Or someone paid an institution a large amount of money to get this piece of paper without having to do the work. Right. And, and, and unfortunately, yeah, in, there are some uh, what, what are referred to as diploma dispensaries. Yes. Which just, you basically, you pay them, you do a minimal amount of work, you write a paper, mm-hmm. and then you're doctor. Yeah. And, that, that's, and that's not just in Christian circles, too. That right. happens in many places, but it also tends to, does tend to happen in, in Christian circles because a lot of the Christian schools are private 
and they unaccredited. don't unaccredited, and so they're not having to report to the to to the uh, accreditation boards, and so they can just type up a document. I mean, really, I mean, you can you can type up a document that says anything. <laughs> right. I mean, I uh, you know I am a I'm an official Dudist priest uh, from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> there's, there's a website that that grew up from that. It's the Church of the Dude. And, uh, and you, all you have to do for that is have, uh, you know, type your name into a little blank and, and then mm-hmm. print. And, uh, so I don't know if it's actually recognized by anyone, but I mean, any organization can put together, um, a certification and, you know, I did that of course as a joke, but, uh, right. You know, it didn't get you anything Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> other than to say you've got it. And, and that's the reason why when you're looking at sources too, if you do see that doctor, uh, on an article, where did they get that from? You know, if it's from Oxford, okay, you can feel pretty confident. Sure. That would be awesome. Uh, if, you know, if it's from Billy Bob's Sunday School, you know, no, just just no. Now, I'm not saying that ordinary people can't have insights into the Bible and can't understand things. I, I, I don't have my doctorate. I just have a master's degree. And in the world of academia, that's not much. Right. Um, now, I'm a good researcher. I, I, I am 100%. I'm an excellent researcher. Uh, I, that's one of the skills that I have no shame in, in saying that I have. But I also note that in my research, I need to be using solid sources. And so I right. think that's a really good example of things that you can come across when you're just trying to learn Bible and, and be more familiar with scripture that can get you into trouble. Right. And, and I, you know, I'm a decent researcher as well. I'm probably not as proficient as you, cause I haven't, I haven't practiced it as much with, skill. with, yeah. uh, you know, earning a degree, but that is one of the things you do have to watch out for. And the other thing is sometimes you might use a, a wrong source and say something that's fallacious, but, um, the biggest thing is to make sure that you're being um, teachable and you're mm-hmm. you're willing to to suffer correction because every one of us has had some some idea about God that is wrong at some point in their lives. And whenever you come across a verse that that corrects at you again, and I think we've mentioned this before, but you know when we when we find something that goes against our belief or our systematic, it's incumbent on us to change what we believe based on what the Bible says. It's not incumbent on the Bible to change to get out of our way. Yeah. Well, you know, I was reading an article, um, I think it was this morning, and they were talking about what happens when you, you're you dealing with somebody who's a know-it-all. Mm-hmm. And they said one of the questions to ask is, when's the last time you changed your mind? When's the last time you changed your opinion? And I thought, man, that's a really great question. That's a really good question. <laughs> and because if someone can say, oh, yeah, I, I, I have had points where I've changed my mind, then they're, they're showing they can't be teachable. Mm. And I know my theology has changed over the years, and oh, yeah. I think that's a good thing. And it didn't mean that the Bible was wrong. It meant that my understanding of the Bible was wrong. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that we were willing to be corrected. And I tell you, you know, the more you're, you're willing to study, and if, if you're listening to the podcast, you're obviously— <laughs> want to know some of this stuff, the better it, it gets, the more information you can find. It's just, it, the Bible becomes much more clear. It becomes much more, um, uh, it, it, much more engaging even mm-hmm. uh, whenever we're going through the text and actually oh, picking yeah. it apart and using the reliable sources. Because 
there's actually, I mean, there's there are there are ways you can answer questions that stop further questions, Mm -hmm. and then there are ways that you can answer questions that go that that let people know, like, oh yeah, there's more out there to this, and we should look for it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I'm a firm believer that you will never exhaust anything in the Bible. Uh, I've yet to hit the end of a verse. (laughs) I so um, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting about this, um, there is. Rightfully so, uh, some speculation about the identity of Potiphar and Potiphera. Okay. Because I think anyone who's listening right off the bat, you hear how similar those two words are. Mm -hmm. And Potiphar's only mentioned by name twice in all of scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Potiphera appears in four different verses. And so not a whole lot of of re- record of how the name is written. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to point out there. That there could easily be a scribal error that was not caught. Sure. And so this is this is leaving it open for uh, a speculation. If you were looking at this written out in Hebrew, there's one letter difference. It's the last letter and being added to Potiphar. Okay. And so much like in English. Very much. <laughs> well, in English, it's actually, you know, they change the vowels and then, yeah. So anyhow. Sorry. Uh, I, it's close. It's close. <laughs> yeah. The, the LXX, uh, the Septuagint, it has, it actually writes the name the same way uh, for Potiphar and Potiphera. Okay. So we have some really good reason to question whether Potiphera and Potiphar are the same person. and. This has led to some really interesting stories. Now, so, okay, so that was your, oops. So that little intro to this, this situation tells you why there's a dispute. So you can, I think that kind of illustrates that there's, there's valid reasons to make, to ask the question. And, but because there is a question, the rabbis always come up with these really great solutions. Now, if you're speaking Hebrew, Hebrew has masculine and feminine words. Right. And feminine words end with an ah sound, that potafer ah mm-hmm. sound. So now we have a question. Why would it be potafer? And then why all of a sudden, it, it's, which is masculine. Mm-hmm. And why would this switch over to a feminine ending? Okay. So. If you remember in the story of Potiphar's wife, we brought up the fact that Joseph is beautiful or handsome and well-formed or well-built, and that this may have been why Pharaoh purchased him because he was a good-looking guy. Potiphar. uh, Yeah, Potiphar purchased him because he had some attraction uh, for Joseph. And then there's this name change after all of this happens. Okay. So... You're going to love the story. Uh, it sounds like it. I, I'm curious <laughs> so, to see where you're going with this. The, the uh, story is that Potiphar made his move on Joseph. Okay. And at the last second, Michael intervenes and castrates Potiphar. And so now he must have a feminine female name uh, to denote that there has been this change. Okay. And so 
you gotta love Hebrew myths are not tame. No, I, not at all. I love, and I love that because I mean, who needs more entertainment than that? Um, now that solves a problem with the biblical text in one aspect, but we also have another problem because Potiphar evidently has a daughter, right? And as I've said in the other episodes, this whole text with Joseph is problematic. Okay. And the fact that he marries an Egyptian girl has caused some, I mean, you just didn't do that. Um, in, in Torah later on instructs, you know, don't, you don't marry but, us. But there's no prohibition yet. Not at this point. But you got to remember with the rabbis, as we discussed with Jacob, with his prayers and things like that, he was already practicing the Torah because sure. he already knew the Torah. So they're trying to bring this back into alignment. And so how do we solve this problem? <laughs> Well, I, I think this kind of illustrates the whole reaching to, <laughs> to the point where you have to change scripture mm-hmm. to, to explain it without, you know, working within what it actually says. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I, we, we've, got, we've got a problem and then another problem, then more problems. So how do we solve these problems? Yeah, this, is, this is the fun part of Judaism. Uh, so the pseudo, uh, the Targum pseudo-Jonathan uh, provides an answer. And we talked about uh, the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan in in another episode, too. That was about, um, I'm trying to remember which one that was. That was with Rachel, Rachel's death. And um, so he proposes the solution that when Dina was raped by Shechem, that, I can't even see your face, but I saw the body. Go ahead. Uh, When Dina was raped by Shechem, that Jacob was so ashamed to have a granddaughter that was produced through such a violent act that he puts gives the child a little gold tablet with uh, this is a daughter of Jacob and puts it on her neck and then kicks her out of camp. And so the angel Michael once again saves the day. DSX Mechana. DSX um, <laughs> Michael. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Michael. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, kidding. Yeah. He, that doesn't work. He takes, yeah. He takes uh, Dean, Dina's daughter to the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar raises her as his own. And then when Joseph is in the city, the girls think he's so beautiful when he's riding his chariot through the street that they start throwing gold at him. And the only thing he has, she has that's gold is this tablet that Jacob had given her. Okay. And so she throws it at Jacob, uh, at Joseph, and Joseph realizes that she's a daughter of Jacob and therefore a suitable wife, and he decides to marry her. Okay. So this is how we solve that problem. <laughs> I, okay, well, I guess. Uh, yeah. It, it, Whatever. I don't, I don't know how do you, how do you respond to that? <laughs> well, it, you know, and, and then, of course, even that story creates even bigger problems because now Joseph is marrying his half-niece. Right. And that's also forbidden in the Torah. And so it, it, some of these stories create more problems than they solve. Yeah, this one seems to. Yeah, well, <laughs> what it does, though, it solves the biggest problem. Because the the rabbis did not like the idea that Joseph had married. The, not only was she Egyptian, she was the daughter of the priest of On. Right. And how how dare he? And and they want Joseph to be the golden boy, 
They they want him to to stand up and be, represent all that's good and right and true about Israel, and so this is how they they prevent it. And so now Joseph, even though he's marrying his half niece, he is saving her from a pagan household. And this is why we have to be so careful with these myths, because it is an overstatement. Why can't we just have Joseph marry the woman that was given to him? Yeah. And well, it, it's this is what happens. When we want to deify our heroes. And precisely because. It, or when we want to make even make heroes out of some of the biblical characters. I mean, you know, now, now I'm not saying Joseph didn't do something heroic. Right. You know, his his plan basically saved the saved the uh, world a, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, excuse me, but but whenever we start trying to make them sinless, precisely is, is the problem. And you know, I think the Bible's very clear on that that nobody is. Mm-hmm. And and again, I mean. And it bothers me, too, if we're looking at the, the Bible from this lens of uh, redemption and we're looking at redemptive mm-hmm. stories and God go, stepping in where people have screwed up and fixing it, marrying an Egyptian woman ca- cannot be something that's insurmountable. It doesn't <laughs> seem—to me, I'm like—but again, of course, we haven't really got into this idea of, of repentance and redemption uh, except for Judah, we've we kind of mm-hmm. started down that path. That was but, the first act of it, right there. Yeah. So, but, but to to me, I'm like going, you know, and of course, this is me looking through my lens. It's like this. Why is why is this the problem that's too big for God right. to fix? You know, and it's kind of it's almost funny because you know it's like with with uh, Joe on the intro of the commentarians where he's like, Jesus died for your sins, except when you have sex. He doesn't cover that one. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's that whole idea of like, what what is it about that 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 takes it a step too far? Exactly, because Jacob's other sons are marrying outside the tribe, and right. they don't try to fix this for the other sons, just Joseph, and that tells you that there's a bias. I mean, why why wouldn't they try to fix it for everyone, and not just Joseph? There is this emphasis that that's being put on Joseph. Uh, and, you know, like you pointed out, there, there's no prohibition at this point. Right. There, there really is. A, and really, most of the women around them are related in some way or another anyway, whether it's through Esau or Ishmael. Mm-hmm. So even if they aren't part of the covenant community, they're still family. And that's OK, because remember, Abraham sent the servant back to Laban's house to mm-hmm. get Isaac a wife. Right. And then Rebecca sends Jacob to Laban's house to get a wife. So there's no real problem there within the text. Right. It's just when we start adding to it. Sure. And that that's the problem there. Now, are Potiphar and Potiphar are the same person? Uh, oh yeah, because we're back to that. Yeah, we're Sorry. back to that. <laughs> because that I mean that's what all of this is trying to to answer. Uh, we had to go on this crazy tangent. Now, the thing is, uh, in the biblical text, we know that Potiphar is. Pharaoh's chief steward. He's right. every time he's referred to, we have he's the chief steward, and sometimes he's just referred to as the chief steward. He is never referred to as the priest of On. Okay. Um, the priest of On is never referred to as the chief steward in Potiphar. Whenever his name, it's always Potiphar, the priest of On. Okay. So, in my viewpoint, I think that. The scripture's going out of their way to delineate between the two. 
Right. That would make sense. I mean, why? Because the Bible's very economical with its words. Sure. And when you start having repetition, you need to to look at it. Uh, why is there repetition? And I, I that makes sense to me. Um, variations on this Potiphar name were not uncommon. So, you know, we've got John and Jonathan and different names in our society mm-hmm. that are just variations of the same name. Right. And so we can't just say because somebody has the same name, they're the same person. Uh, as far as the feminine, masculine endings, Potiphar and Potiphera were Egyptian names. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same grammar rules right. as Hebrew. So we don't it's have fair. to, yeah, we don't have to bring that into to play. Now, I wished it worked. I really do. And, and, and the reason why I wished they were the same person, I, I have kind of, I was sad when I had to accept <laughs> that it well, wasn't. And let me, let me think about this. I'm just going to speculate here why you might wish it worked. Would it, it would be kind of like a, uh, one of those things where, Potiphar tried to take from Joseph and then Joseph wound up taking from Potiphar. Is that? Yeah, it would have been a complete full circle reversal. Mm-hmm. And now the slave would have been part of that, the household. Right. And that, that would have been a great picture. I mean, there's enough great pictures without it, but yeah, it's but, still... it, but it would have been moving from, from slavery into sonship. Exactly. And, and kind of repeating that type of narrative. Yeah. yeah. I got you. Yeah. That makes sense. And there, there's one, and the other reason, and this is just because I really like the story. Uh, there's another story that we have, and the story is about Potiphar's wife and trying to explain her motivation. Okay. And um, the story is essentially that she went to a fortune teller or a magician of some sort and was you know, trying to find out her future. And she was told, well, you and Joseph will give birth to many great nations together. And so she manipulates the situation where she can try to seduce Joseph so that she can fulfill what the fortune teller had told her. Okay. Well, the, in the story, the fact that he marries her daughter would have been the fulfillment. And so it becomes a cautionary tale that going to magicians, going to fortune tellers, you get a partial view of the truth, mm-hmm. but you don't get the full view of the truth. And so, just enough to mess you up. Precisely. <laughs> that, that was exactly it. And where she was trying to manipulate. And well, and we see that with Rebecca. We see right. Rebecca saying, oh, well, I've got to manipulate this into happening, where, which doesn't make any sense. If, if it's set in the stars or God, or, or God has decreed it, our meddling's not going to make a difference. Right. But uh, every time I hear that story, I always think of the movie with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, The Red Violin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, the fortune teller tells her that she's going to do all these great and amazing things, and then she dies. Mm-hmm. And so if you haven't watched the movie, uh, I think it's a good movie. I, I, I liked it. So that's, that's kind of the, the Potiphar side of things and Potiphera and kind of solving some of that mystery. Uh, it would be very doubtful that a person could be both the priest of own and the chief steward. Uh, both those who have been demanding yeah. positions yeah that was, that's a that's a big workload <laughs> so um so i think that kind of leads us to the question who was the priest of own because uh evidently he deserves to be noticed because we do have the repetition right it was potifera uh, yeah potifera yeah that's yeah thank you the, Dad. Answer, the answer is in the text 
<laughs> the answer isn't. Okay. So um, we have him mentioned in Genesis 41, 5, and uh, Genesis 41, 45, Genesis 41, 50. Uh, we also have the city of On, uh, which is near Goshen. We have it mentioned in Ezekiel 30, um, verse 17. And then we have it mentioned in Jeremiah 43, 13. It's interesting there. It's uh, in Jeremiah. It's translated "house of Shemesh," okay, which Shemesh is house of the sun, okay. And so, and in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it's it's always connected with judgment. It, it's always uh, God's wrath being poured out on it, okay. And um, in Greek times, when Ptolemy uh, was ruling, uh, it was known as the Heliopolis, sure, and it was a I mean, it's a huge, we, a huge archaeological site. Now there is uh, pretty much only one of the obelisk left there. There was, it was known as the city of pillars because it had a lot of uh, the the Egyptian obelisk. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And so uh, one of them has been removed, and I think it's in the C- Central Park in New York. One's in uh, Britain. One, I, they they've been taken apart and carried around the world. And it was the central place of worship for the sun god 3,000 years before Christ was born. Hmm. So it had been in uh, use. It's been around a bit. Yeah, yeah. And matter of fact, one of God's promises uh, is that he's going to shatter the obelisk, and that's Jeremiah 43, 13. Hmm. Um, in Egyptian... In Egyptian mythology, this was supposed to be the place of creation. Okay. It, it was the the site where everything happened. And um, Does that have anything to do with the pillars of creation expression? You know, it might. I really didn't think about that. But that's a good point. Well, guess what we're covering in a special. No, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I'll, that should be interesting to look into. Uh, it was the primary place of scholarship before Alexandria. And so if you had anyone who was wise and smart, then this is where they were going to go to. So it kind of makes sense that Pharaoh would marry Joseph into this family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Because you know, he who has wisdom will be given more wisdom is part of what the Bible teaches. And right. this was not just a biblical teaching. This was something that was common in ancient cultures. Um, and it also explains why uh, Potiphar... Uh, Potiphera named his daughter Azanoth, which means she who belongs to Nath. Okay. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, she's one of the, Nath is one of the oldest Egyptian goddesses. Um, she's created with the creation of the gods. Okay. And you got to remember in Egyptology, when you create a god, you create a new thing. So if you're going to create the sun, you're creating Ra. If you're going to uh, create the land, you're creating a different god. Each god is a physical manifestation. Sure. And each physical manifestation is a god. So as she created the gods, she was also creating the world, or you could view it as when she created the world, she was also creating the god. Okay. So, yeah. And she was credited to by speaking the, the world into existence through seven magic words. And she was very much worshipped there because she was Ra's mother. Okay. And well. yeah, she was also the, the goddess of childbirth, wisdom, death, uh, anything to do with uh, funerary rites, uh, watching over the dead, 
uh, she gets absorbed later on into Isis and Hathor and other feminine deities uh, because she was an old, an old god. But in the Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic uh, period, she's really deeply associated with Athena. Okay. And when you read her stories, you can see why she's associated with Athena. There, there's uh, a lot of similarities uh, between the two. Um, and I also thought it was interesting. She seems really to have a connection um, to our ideas of Halloween that um, it, it's, it's the idea that her festivals were held at the time when the veil between the living and the dead was removed. Okay. And so that the spirits came and walked on the earth during the time of her festivals. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I didn't have time to really dig down deep into that. Um, so Joseph, Joseph's marriage really is an attempt to, to make him be an Egyptian. Yeah. Uh, and not just any old Egyptian, but I mean, like really part of the culture. Part of the community, a powerful the, yeah. e- Egyptian. And, and using, I guess, putting a powerful position to say, you know, you're not just a, a sheep herder anymore. Well, and, and I think this, it, it gives him credibility in the eyes of the other Egyptians that um, his power would come from a deity that they were familiar with. And kind of took the spotlight off of the the true source of his power, mm-hmm. because if he's with the family and doing family events with the priest of own, people are going to assume he's serving with own, right? And so now Pharaoh kind of Pharaoh's having to be careful here. He he needs Joseph to save everyone. But the idea is, like we said earlier, giving his kingdom over to a former slave and not just any slave, a a slave who his culture and background was considered to be an abomination to the Egyptians Mm -hmm. because the Egyptians didn't deal with sheep herders. They didn't deal with people who ate sheep and goat meat. That was awful. And um, that's the reason why when Joseph's brothers come up and they eat dinner with him, they have to eat separately from Joseph and the Egyptians. Right. And this is even with um, Moses in the Exodus. Whenever he goes to Pharaoh, he says, let's go offer our offerings to our God. And we need, you know, we need to go out. We need to, to go at least three days mm-hmm. on a journey because we don't want to offend you. And because this would have caused an uprising among the Egyptians. Yeah. Well, and, and even to, uh, to say that Joseph, by the power of his God, had interpreted this dream. He'd be saying that what our society is built on yeah. is false. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's incredible. It's, and so Pharaoh's being smart, but you've got to remember, Pharaoh is very much, he's Laban mm-hmm. and he's Abimelech, uh, the, the same character person, uh, not that, ex- that he's exactly the same person. Obviously, he's a, a different person, but he's that same character in the story. Right. So now, fortunately, people realized that there was a huge problem with trying to fix the story of Joseph and Asenath the way that the Targum Pseudo Jonathan attempted to fix it. Okay. And um, they actually 
someone, and we don't know who, because this is a pseudepigraphal work. It's, um, mm-hmm. it, it's, they wrote a book called Joseph and Asenoth. Okay. And again, available online. You can get PDFs of it. It's out there to read. I actually, I thought it was a great read. I, I read through it in preparation for this. Um, we, um, there's a debate on how old it is. Okay. So, um, we we know that it's got to at least be Second Temple, and the reason why it's got to be Second Temple is because of some of the the linguistic. Dropped your Bible. Uh, Keep going. the The linguistic markers can't really predate Second Temple. Um, one of the things I think you would have even picked up on if you read it. Um, there's some discussion of Satan, uh-huh. and I think you would have from what we've studied and listened to Marian Brand, would have realized that this idea of Satan really didn't come around until Second Temple period. So, right. Well, I mean, it, now, it depends on how he's discussed. Now, is he discussed in the sense of how Job has discussed in Job, or is he discussed as in the, like, the devil character, like what we think of in the New Testament? More like in the New Testament. Because... So, yeah, well, that's a whole other topic we can get into. Well, and I thought, well, <laughs> as I'm reading through this and I'm picking up on it, and I know there's a lot of questions that people have about translation work. How do you know how old a, a document is? How can you tell what the age is? And I'm like, as I'm reading this, I'm like, no, Nathan would have even known this, and you don't have a degree in this. Right. But, but it's just that level of familiarity. When you get used to how a certain how things are written in a certain time period, you pick up on the language that's mm-hmm. used for that time period, and you know when it's out of place, and you know when it is where it should be. Um, but we do know, like I said, Second Temple uh, period, definitely, we know it was definitely written in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely written by a Jew, um, probably in Hebrew originally. Uh, it's so Second Temple that it feels Christian. Okay. It, it almost feels like you're reading something that could be in the New Testament, and and matter of fact, for for a long time, there was a debate that said that a Christian had written it, um, and others said no, it wasn't a Christian that wrote it. It, it was a Jewish work, but Christians uh, put interpolations in there, okay. uh, so and that's additions to make the text sound more Christian. Um, now we know that it's pretty much a given that it is a holy Jewish uh, document. We also have some... That's W-H-O-L-E-Y, not H-O-L-E-Y. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we can, Fully Jewish document. There, there we go. Um, it's got some very... Um, we believe that it was written by the Essene community that was living in Alexandria because okay. there's some definite Essene influences in the text. Um, we think that uh, there's some Gnostic influence in there. Okay. So, uh, you know, not something that you just want to go, oh, this is, this is something I can trust. This is one thing I can completely believe. It's something that needs to be handled with some kid gloves and some discernment. Um, but still very interesting because it's, it gives that insight into thinking, uh, how people were thinking and what their thought process mm-hmm. was. And this kind of was a pushback against that idea in the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan that marrying an Egyptian was so horrible. Right, and it it kind of allows it to be more acceptable. Uh, one of the reasons that we know it's an Egyptian text, or sorry, a Jewish text, 
is Asenoth is described unlike the daughters of the Egyptians, but in every aspect like the daughters of the Hebrews. She was as tall as Sarah, as beautiful as Rebecca, and as fair as Rachel. <laughs> so right there, we're going we're gonna to take her out of her Egyptian culture, and uh, we're going to, to give her all of these Jewish aspects. Hmm. Um, we also, another stylistic thing that's going on here, it's very much in the same style as uh, the Septuagint and the way things are phrased. And as you read through this, you begin to see that this is a document that's very much in, con- in support of conversion to Judaism, mm-hmm. which is really unusual because we don't see a lot of witnessing and, hey, come to the, the synagogue this week. And yeah, we're not, they don't proselytize a whole lot. Yeah, it, it just it doesn't happen. And one of the few times it happens uh, was in Alexandria. And so this is where this book came into being. And uh, Alexandria, uh, that's the place where when they began running into the problem with converts, that circumcision yeah. became, mm-hmm. a, that they appealed to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Gotcha, yeah. And so this this document was written to, to help with the idea of conversion. It wasn't, and it wasn't written for Egyptians to try to convince them to become Jewish. It was written to Jews to encourage them to accept the Egyptians who had converted. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's, it, it's fascinating how it was put together. Um, the most significant part of the book is uh, chapters 12 and 13. And I thought I had it marked here. Excuse me while I fumble with my... So chapters 12 and 13, Yeah, can you summarize? Well, yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's known as the prayer of Asnet. Um, and this prayer is held up as the model of repentance. And okay. now remember, up to this point, repentance in the Joseph story, in the Bible, repentance hasn't been a huge... Right, it's not really established. Yeah. And so... Um, she, she begins to praise God as creator. I mean, O oh Lord, God of the ages, that does give me the breath of life, that does bring into light the things unseen, has made all things uh, and made visible that was invisible, that has raised up the heaven and founded the earth upon the waters. I, this is language I think most people familiar with the Bible would be comfortable with. Right. Um, as a father that loves his children and is tenderly affectionate and snatch me from the hand of the enemy, for lo, the uh, the primeval lion pursues me, and his children are the gods of Egypt that have I have abandoned and destroyed, and their father the devil who is trying to devour me. But that, but do, O Lord, deliver me from his hands and rescue me from his mouth. Th- this sounds like Psalms. Yeah. I mean, and so she continues with this prayer that, um, where she, she basically acknowledges she has no right to be heard, but she wants to be heard. Right. And she's going to repent. She's going to put aside all of uh, all the Egyptian gods. She praises God for his power and love, confess, confesses her need to be saved from Satan, from Leviathan even. Um, and she, she describes her anguish over the sin. And you know, the Leviathan's another second temple tip-off. Right. It's a huge theme. Um, and at the end of the prayer, the commander of the Lord's army appears to her. 
and he uh, instructs her on what to do. So the commander of the Lord Army um, during Second Temple Lit, we're also looking at him as the second power of heaven. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this in the Bible, how he's presented as God incarnate or God embodied in the right. Old Testament. And so she gets this visitation and she becomes, like I said, the, the model of this is what the perfect convert does, that this level of repentance, and it, it's, this is a new idea in Second Temple Lit, right? that repentance, I mean, we start to see some of it in Isaiah, we start seeing, you know, like the, the foundations laid with Judah, but we really don't see it explained until we get into the prophets. And that really sets the stage for the New Testament. Um, some of the interesting points in this book is when we're introduced to Simon and um, Levy, uh-huh. they're her escorts. They, they become kind of her bodyguards. And when you think about the, the fact that Simon and Levy were the ones who fought on the behalf of Dina. Right. And so you, you see them accepting her fully as a sister. And she, she loves to Levi more than all the other brothers because he is a prophet. Hmm. And so there's this elevation of Levi. Um, Levi washes and dresses the wounds uh, of Pharaoh's. They actually, sorry, let me jump ahead there in my notes. They, they wind up getting into a fight because Pharaoh's son wants to get Asenoth back from Joseph. Okay. And so Simon and Levi are the ones that fight on their behalf. It's not even Joseph. It's, it's those two. Right. And instead of destroying Pharaoh's son, Levi actually dresses the wounds. Hmm. And when I read that, I was reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. And so one of the things that this was written is not just the idea that she's the perfect convert, but to kind of redeem Simon and Levi from the, um, from their role in the destruction of Shechem. Yeah. And now that they've been elevated beyond this point of just being uh, these violent men, but they, they've, they've grown, they've matured by the time they re-encounter, uh, re-encounter uh, Joseph in Egypt. Right. And so they've changed their ways. Joseph may have had a wife who was born Egyptian but it's okay. They don't have to, he doesn't have to worry about it or feel bad because she's converted. Hmm. And that's how Second Temple chooses to uh, solve the problem, as opposed to Michael having to do terrible things to, to Potiphar. Okay. So, well, it's interesting. <laughs> and I, these are just some of the things that are out there, and there's, there's way more. There's the Testament of the Twelve Brothers that has even more to the stories and again available online for those who want to read it uh, that reminds me of proverbs or ecclesiastic uh maybe um the wisdom of ben sirach yeah so it, it's it's fun to read these because you really do see how the vocabulary comes into play and starts to um starts to shape the way people are thinking about mm-hmm. things right so that's kind of all I had as far as myth, folklore, and midrash. Okay, well, cool. Well, next week we're back to the text, right? Uh, back to the text. Back uh, figuring out what Joseph's doing. And um, so, yeah, seems like a good place. So, anyway, uh, everyone out there in the internet world, 
Thanks for joining us. Uh, be sure to join us next week. In the meantime, you can be part of the conversation at Raven Creek SC at pretty much all social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Pinterest, I think. But anyway, <laughs> we're not, we don't do much with that. But anyway, uh, you can also uh, support us if you want to, if you like what you heard um, at patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC or head up Raven Creek SC.com to see all that. Uh, our uh, sister podcast, uh, The Commentarians, and uh, some other blog posts by me and Emily here and there. So thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you back next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.